Hi everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on September the 29th in 2014. Hope you enjoy. <laughs> It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. You ought to see Chester. He is really rocking out to the music. He, <laughs> he's up dancing around. Oh, man. We're going to watch Chester dance tonight. When he gets in this mood, folks, there is no stopping him. He, he dances all night. And he can do a lot of different dances. I'm not kidding. Well, welcome, everybody. Howdy. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is our old-time radio show where we feature shows that we remember from when we were kids because we are baby boomers. And we welcome all of you along because we're not just going to listen to some great old-time radio shows. We're also going to listen to some music. We're going to tell a few stories about when we were kids growing up and just sharing some nostalgia few reminisces and just having a good time. So we're glad you came in. It's time for you to put your feet up and uh, relax. We have a great show. We have an episode of Dragnet tonight. We have an episode of the Jack Benny show. Very funny. And we're going to end up things with a very well-written Gunsmoke script that you're going to enjoy. High sound quality. So we've got it all set up, ready to go, and we're going to get started in just a minute.
ride, a little dragnet, everybody. What do you say? What do you say? This is one of my favorite all-time episodes. It was originally broadcast back on October of 1953 on the 17th, and it's entitled The Big Revolt. Vic Perrin is featured in this one, and he has an interesting accent, which you don't hear him do a lot. Very good in this one. Uh, Of course, this one features Jack Webb and Ben Alexander. And this is an episode that showed the Dragnet really did have a lot of heart. A couple little interesting notes in this one. They mentioned the Coconut Grove, which was uh, the nightclub that was associated with the uh, Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, just uh, up from downtown Los Angeles, on the way to... uh, to Beverly Hills, and it was uh, right across the street from the uh, world-famous Brown Derby restaurant. Very famous area there, and it's alluded to in that way. It was a place where people, especially in the 40s, a lot of big bands played there. It was the 40s nightclub. I remember it from when I was a a kid growing up in uh, California. I got to go in there one time. You had to be 21 to go into the Coconut Grove, and I left home when I was just a couple months shy of 21. So I never got to go there as a nightclub, but uh, I was in the Ambassador Hotel one time and the Coconut Grove was closed and they let us uh, go in and walk around. Beautiful, beautiful. You felt like you were outdoors with palm trees. Very, uh, very beautiful setting. And of course, the Ambassador Hotel, sadly, was the uh, scene of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And that really did taint, uh, you know, everyone's memory of the Ambassador Hotel. Well, anyway. Here we go from October the 17th, 1953. Let's enjoy Dragnet and the Big Revolt. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a missing persons detail. You get a call that a man is missing. He failed to return from his work the day before. There are no leads to his whereabouts. Your job, find him. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 16th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide division, missing persons detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. My name's Friday. I was on my way back to the office, and it was 11.59 p.m. when I got to room 24. Missing persons. What was his mental condition when you last saw him, Mr. Ford? Where'd you last see him? Was he driving his car? Mm-hmm. What time was that? Yes, ma'am, but what was the exact time? I see. And your address? On the phone, please. Now, can you think of anything you forgot to tell me? Right. Right. Oh, you gave me that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, was your husband a drinking man, ma'am? I see. Okay, Miss Borg, we'll make a check. Call you back. 
Yes, ma'am. We'll do our best. Thanks. Anything? Man, but the name of Borg missing. You know, I'm sure glad my wife doesn't call for help every time I miss a meal. Trouble with most guys is they let a woman keep tabs on them, check on everything they do. Let me see that 97, will you? Yeah, there you go. It's everything his wife gave me. Mm-hmm. When you get the jails and records, I'll check Georgia Street County Hospital in the morgue. Looked like a routine investigation. Lots of things can keep a man from getting home. A few drinks, sick friend, unexpected business conference, a flat tire on an isolated road, maybe just boredom. But there are other things that can keep a man from getting home. It had to be checked out. Henry Borg, 51, male, white American, address 1571 East Barendo Street, had failed to return home at the usual time on Monday. His wife called one of the men he worked with and found that he hadn't been at work all day that day. He still hadn't come home the next afternoon. She called us. I checked the Gaga file to see if he was one of our regular customers, mental case or alcoholic. He wasn't. Frank and I checked the jails, the hospitals, and the morgue. They had no record of him there. No John Doe's fitting his description. And Borg had no criminal record. We could assume that he was at least alive. Frank called Mrs. Borg back, told her not to worry, and asked her to call us immediately if she heard from her husband. Wednesday, 3.10 p.m. Still no word of Henry Borg. The day watch had made another check of the jails, the hospitals, and the morgue. Mrs. Borg called three times. The day watch officer's notes described her as very upset. I called her back and asked her to come in the next day to file a missing persons report. I asked her also to bring in the best picture she had of her husband. Thursday, 2.40 p.m. Mrs. Borg was waiting with Frank when I got to work. She'd already filled out the Form 316. She was holding an aging Pekingese dog in her arms. Joe, this is Mrs. Borg. How are you, ma'am? My partner, Joe Friday, ma'am. Hello, Officer Friday. I talked to Mr. Smith and filled out the paper. Here's that picture you wanted. Oh, yes. Thank you very much, ma'am. It's a good likeness. Mm -hmm. Now, Ms. Borg, I see here that you haven't put anything down under personal habits for your husband. Well, I don't understand. Well, does your husband drink at all, ma'am? Henry? No. He takes a glass of beer with his supper when he comes home, but he's not what a person would call a drinking person. Gamble? Gamble? Yes, ma'am. Cards, dice, horses. Oh, I should say not. He never does nothing like that. You've never known him to gamble at all, then? Henry? I should say not. Now, Miss Borg, you say here that your husband has no relatives. Only brother Ed, older brother, but I didn't put him down. We don't know where he lives. Haven't heard a word about him nine, ten years. Mm -hmm. What about your family? Your husband friendly with your family? My family hasn't spoke to me since the day I married Henry Borg. Mrs. Borg, I see you only have one friend listed, a Hal Bishop. That's the man your husband rode to work with, isn't it? Yes. Do you know Mr. Bishop's address? No, I don't. Did your husband ride to work with Bishop every day? You say he left his car at home Monday. Did he ever drive it to work? Well, he usually drove our car, but then he'd ride with Mr. Bishop pretty often, too. I didn't think anything about it. It didn't seem like anything. Well, did your husband spend much time with this Bishop? No, just at work. Henry used to like to spend his free time with me. All right, now, ma'am, please don't get upset here. Did your husband have any financial problems, debts that were worrying him? Financial difficulties, like bills and things? No, Henry always took care of it. Do you think there might have been anything you didn't know about that was worrying him? Officer, if Henry was worried about anything, I'd have known it. He'd have told me for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, what about your home? Do you own it? What do you mean? Was there a mortgage on it, I mean? Yes. Do you have the pink slip on your car? No, no. Well, is it possible that your husband was behind in the payments? No, no, he would have told me. Well, did he owe money down where he worked? No, not that I know of. His job, maybe. Was he worried about that? 
Mr. Snyder, that's his boss. Well, he always said Henry would have a job as long as he was in the contracting business. Henry makes good wages. Mm -hmm. You say here his mental condition was good. Has that ever been poor? You ever know your husband to black out? How do you mean, black out? Well, has he ever suffered from lapse of memory? Is there any history of epilepsy in his family? History of epilepsy? Oh, no, not Henry. He's a healthy man. He hasn't had a sick day. Now, Miss Borg, have you and your husband been getting along lately? What do you mean by a thing like that, officer? You think Henry and I had a fight, and that's why he left. Is that what you think? No, ma'am. We don't think anything here, but these are the things we have to check out. Well, it's a waste of time. Don't you think I'd have already told you that? If Henry and I had had a fight, I'd have told your first office the first thing I'd have said. Yes, Something's happened to my husband, officer. I just know it. Something's happened to him. Did you and your husband go out together much, ma'am? Well, one night last month, we went to the Coconut Grove, there in the Ambassador Hotel. And we used to go up the movies pretty regular. Was he in the habit of leaving the house at night alone? No. Just when he went out with Francine. Francine? Yes, our, our Pekingese here. Three fifty-five p.m. Thursday, June eighteenth. Began to look as if Henry Borg was in trouble. From what we'd been told, he wasn't a man who had just suddenly decided to leave home. We had to find out if the facts we'd been given were accurate. Thursday, four ten p.m. We contacted Borg's friend Hal Bishop just as he was leaving the construction job where they both worked. He said he hadn't gone by Borg's house to pick him up Monday because Borg hadn't asked him to. The way they worked it, Borg always told him the day before if he wanted a ride. At first, Bishop said he hadn't noticed anything strange about Borg recently. Then he decided Borg had been a little irritable the last few days. He said it wasn't like him to be irritable. That he'd never known Borg to miss work before. That he'd never heard of any trouble between Borg and his wife. He said that Borg didn't talk much about his wife. We called on the neighbors of the Borgs. They said nothing to indicate any flaws in Mrs. Borg's story. Henry and Martha Borg were average people in an average neighborhood. He went to work every morning at 7 a.m., came home at 5.15. His neighbors didn't know much about him. He was a quiet man. They lived in the same house for 13 years. Martha Borg was 47, maybe 48. They never had visitors. After 13 years in the same neighborhood, she apparently had no close friends. Two of her neighbors had noticed that in the past year, Martha Borg would leave her house three or four times a week at 11 a.m., always at 11 a.m., she invariably got back before her husband did. The neighbor said she usually brought some shopping home with her. They did go out frequently in the evenings. However, there were no reports of family trouble between Martha and Henry Borg. Thursday, 6.20 p.m., we talked to Adolph Warnicky, whose grocery store was on the corner a half a block from the Borg home. They'd been trading with him ever since they moved to the neighborhood. I don't know what to tell you about Mr. Borg, officer. He always seemed like a nice fellow to me. He didn't say much, but nice. Sure is funny him disappearing like that. You got any idea if he had any trouble with his wife? No, that wife. She's a funny one. Different from Mr. Borg is day and night. Well, how's that, sir? Well, I don't know. High hat, sort of. She's all right, I guess. Kind of show-off, though. Kind of person who dresses up when she goes shopping around the corner. Likes to buy fancy groceries. Stuff I never get calls for. Like those anchovies up there on the shelf. Now, I'll bet you I won't sell two cans of them in a year. But Mrs. Borg comes in and she'll buy them. Now, Mr. Borg, he don't like that kind of stuff at all. Told me so himself. Yes, sir. But how'd they get along? Do you ever say anything about his wife? I'm telling you the truth, officer. I don't know. As far as a man and his wife arguing, I don't pry. Hurts business. Come to think of it, he did say one thing. It was a long time ago, about two, three months ago, maybe more. What was that? What did he say? Well, he came in here, just about like this time it was. Didn't buy anything, just kind of hung around. Remember, he seemed out of sorts. I asked him if he was feeling all right. He said he was. Just felt like he had to get away from the house. Now, that'll happen to a man. Just feel like you got to get away for a while. You know what I mean, officer. 
No, sir, I'm not married. Thursday, 7.50 p.m. Borg's description and the circumstances of his disappearance have been broadcast to all units. Still no word. 4.10 p.m. Friday, June 19th. We checked Borg's union. He hadn't reported for a new job. We filed an all-points bulletin. 8.05 p.m. I checked back into the office. Mrs. Borg was waiting. Sergeant Friday, I'd like to know just what's going on around here. My husband has been missing almost a week, and I don't see why something hasn't been done about it. If you can't find my husband, then why don't they put more men on this case? This is a terrible thing. I'm a woman alone, and the police haven't done a single thing. My husband may be dead. He may be dead, and nobody's doing anything about it. In my work, you hear it every day, but you can't get mad. It's against regulations, and you can't blame them either. They're in trouble, so you let them talk. You try to explain. They don't listen, but you try. Well, we're doing all we can, ma'am. They're always talking these days about giving policemen more money. It seems to me there are certain policemen who aren't even earning the money they get right now. Yes, ma'am. What are you doing for my husband? Miss Borg, here's the file on it. Now, we've made regular checks on the hospitals, the jails, and the morgues. Thursday night when you came in to file that Form 316, we had a complete description of your husband broadcast to all radio units in the city. It was teletyped to every police division. Today, we sent out an all-points bulletin over the state wire. Every police department, sheriff's office, and highway patrol unit in the state knows that your husband is missing. Here, you can see the bulletin right here, ma'am. Now, in these cases, ma'am, we start with nothing. We don't know where they've gone or why they've gone. Most of them turn up by themselves. Some of them don't. We do everything we can to find the ones that don't. Miss Borg, there are 4,000 police officers in this city looking for your husband. p.m. When we thought Mrs. Borg was feeling better, we sent her home. We reminded her again to notify us immediately if she heard from her husband. 9.10 p.m. The desk at Central called and told us that they'd picked up a John Doe. From what they said, he apparently was suffering from amnesia. While I went down to Homicide to check out some reports, Frank went over to Central to see the man they picked up. 9.16 p.m. Frank came back to the office. Joe. Yeah. We checked out that John Doe at Central. Anything on him? Yeah, it's Henry Borg. p.m. Officers Gorman and Mayer brought in Henry Borg, alias John Doe. They found him wandering around in the 900 block down on South Spring Street, the financial district. Wasn't much reason for anybody to be loitering around there at that time of night. All the businesses in the area were closed. The officers investigated. When they questioned the suspect, he would not or could not reply. They took him to Central Division, where the watch commander, Lieutenant Hale, had him shaken down. His wallet was missing. No papers, no identification. In his pockets, the officers found eight cents a key ring, and several keys. No cigarettes, no matches. He was dressed in a good quality worsted suit, very rumpled. No tie, no hat. Gorman and Mayer had rolled his prints at the city hall and sent them to Leighton Prince for classification. During this time, no one let him know that we had any idea who he was. The two officers that had picked him up stood by. Frank and I walked over to where he was sitting. Do you know who you are? Feel sick? Been drinking, maybe? Would you have a rough night? Look, if you can talk, mister, I think you better make things a lot simpler here. We're trying to help you. How about telling us who you are? Maybe there's something wrong with you, mister, but we don't think so. We want to know who you are. We want you to tell us. If you don't, the only thing we can do is let them book you at city jail as a John Doe. That's the law. Now, look, if you're trying to hide something, if you're wanted, we're going to know it in a few minutes anyhow. If you want to wait, we'll wait it out with you. You want us to think you're an amnesia case, is that it? 
Well, maybe you got a good reason, but it won't work. I've been in this department a long time. I've seen a lot of phony amnesia cases. I've only seen one real one, and he didn't act like you. You want to know what I think? I think you're pulling a phony. Come on. How about it, mister? I got it. Missing persons, Friday. All right. Yeah. You bet. Thanks very much. Right. Okay. That was Leighton Prince, mister. They got your fingerprints classified. Now, we know you're not wanted for anything. Look, we know you're not a bum. Your clothes are good, and you look like a guy who takes good care of himself. A man like you doesn't walk around without a wallet. What happened to you? You got a problem? Tell us about it. Maybe we can help you. Now, why don't you tell us who you are? You probably got a wife. She must be mighty worried about you right now. All right. Book him. I lost my wallet. How? I don't know how. Where? I don't know where I've been. Now, you listen to me, mister. We want to know who you are. We want to know where you've been, and we want to know right now. I don't know who I am. Let me see your hands. What? Your hands. Come on, hold them up. Let me see them. That's it. Now, I'm going to tell you something about yourself, mister. You work for a living, don't you? Hard work with your hands. Like a mason, maybe, huh? Yeah, maybe you're a mason or a hod carrier. You could be a painter. Some kind of construction worker, I'd say. Something like a plasterer, for instance, huh? You couldn't be a plasterer by any chance, could you, mister? I don't know. Okay. You ready to talk to us now, Henry? I wasn't trying to fool you. I was only trying to fool myself. No, we've been looking for you since Tuesday, Borg. Your wife's pretty worried. I'm not going back. No matter what you do, I'm not going back. We're not going to make you go back. That's up to you, Borg. All they pay us for, mister, is to find you, to make sure you're okay. None of our business if you go back. I'm not going back. All right, now, look, you're pretty upset, Borg. Why don't you tell us about it? It's crazy. It's crazy what I did. It doesn't make any sense. You fellas, you wouldn't be interested. Maybe I'll just go if it's all right with you. I'll just go. Yeah, it's all right. It's okay if you want to. Look, we're going to be around here another hour. We haven't got much to do. Our work's all cleaned up. We're just about ready to go home. Why don't you stick around and talk to us, huh? We'd kind of like to hear what happened. Yeah. Just might help to clear things up in your mind if you talked about it. It's crazy. I know it's crazy, but I guess I do want to tell somebody about it. How about a cigarette? Will that help? Yeah. Can I give you a match? I am a man 50 years old. I work hard. I learned my trade as a boy of 16. I've been at it ever since. My wife and me, we got a new car. We got our own home. Almost paid for. A man my age, when he gets home nights, he wants to take it easy. Read the paper. Watch the television. Bought a $400 TV, 21-inch screen. Yeah. You want to know what happens when I get home? She wants to go out. Don't make any difference how tired I am. It don't make any difference if I've been working hard all day. She wants to go out. Do you know what that's like? Well, it doesn't sound like the reason a man would leave home. I don't mind it once in a while, if it was just once in a while. But she's after me every minute I'm home. Here for the last few years, it's been every night. I don't know what's come over her. She didn't used to be like that. Martha used to be a sensible woman. Now she acts silly like a young girl. She's different. Goes in for fancy clothes, all kinds of fancy food, even anchovies. And I don't like anchovies. 
last month, I swear, she even made me take her down to the Ambassador Hotel. Imagine me at the Ambassador Hotel. All I ever hear from her is we've just got a few years left to have our fling. I don't want any fling. I'm a plasterer. That's hard work. I get home. I want to rest. It isn't like I cared if she goes out. She goes to the movies almost every day. Goes before noon, she tells me, before the prices go up. I don't care about the money. I want her to have a good time, the clothes, the things like that. I don't care. I love my wife. I guess you think I'm crazy after what I did, but I love my wife. I see, sir. And that dog, that Francine. What kind of a name is that for a dog? You ought to hear her talk to it like it was a person. How long you had the dog, Borg? I don't know. Two, three years. Well, the reason I ask seems funny. You just decided to leave home last Monday. Dog's been around two or three years. The ambassador thing was last month, you said. Well, what did it? It was the lessons. Lessons? The dancing lessons. What? But there's this social club up around Pico and Figueroa. People go there to dance. People our age, she says. Only I can't dance. That's when she gets this idea, I got to take dancing lessons. Did you ever hear of anything like that? A man my age has got to take dancing lessons? That's when you left. It was Sunday afternoon when she got this idea. She kept picking at me all afternoon. It really got me. I thought about it all night. I couldn't sleep. Monday morning, I just didn't go to work. I got drunk instead. Got sick, too. Just couldn't think of anything else to do. Guess you know the rest. I lost my tie, my wallet, lost my hat, too. And they picked me up. I was just kind of wandering around when they picked me up. Seems like a shame when a man can't even go home. Mm -hmm. You sure you don't want to go home now, Borg? Maybe if you talk things over with your wife. No, no, it wouldn't do any good. Nothing I could say to her would do any good. I can't go home. Well, it sure has been interesting hearing you talk, Mr. Borg. It's almost like hearing somebody tell about me, remember, Joe? Yeah. You had something like this? Had it. With me, it was canasta, though. I hate cards, a waste of time. Yeah, I sure thought it was the end for me and Faye. Remember, Joe? But it wasn't? No, for a while, Eric sure looked like I was going to lose my happy home. Guess I would have, too, but I talked turkey to her. You know what I mean, Borg? No. What do you mean? Talk turkey to him. Make him understand. You let a woman push you around, Borg, you're dead. Well, with Martha... Look, they're all the same. I sat her right down on the sofa, and I said, Now, look, Faye, and I told her what the score was. She took it, too. It's the only way to do. You try what I say, Borg, you'll see I'm right. I can just see, Martha, if I ever tried to put my foot down. That's what I thought. I was all set to give it up. Move in with Joe here, right, Joe? Yeah. And I figured I might as well at least get a load off my chest. Once I got started, I lost my temper. You know, it's a funny thing. Faye's always thought more of me since then. You ask her. She'll tell you so herself. Says she respects a man who'll stand up for his own rights. Right, Joe? Yeah. I don't know. With me, I, I don't think it would work. Sure it can. Now, Borg, you listen to me. You tell her you're a working man. Tell her when you get through work, you want to take it easy, and nobody's going to run you. Set her straight, Borg. Get tough if you have to. She won't give you any trouble after that. I... Just don't know. Martha... Did... Won't do any harm to try it. I'd like to see Martha's face just once if I even told her to shut up. 
I wouldn't want her to have anything handy to throw. Borg, look, it's 1210. We've got to be getting home now. You take my advice. You go home, too. Have a talk with her. See if you can't work it out. No. No, Sergeant. Thanks a lot, but I can't go home. Well, like I told you, it's none of our business, but I think you ought to try it. Well, here. Well, look, you're going to need car fare. Here's a dollar. You take this and go on home. That'll get you there. Okay. You'll get this back, Sergeant. I'll pay it back to you. I I guess maybe you're right. Can't hurt anything to try it. Fancy stuff. Thank you a lot. I didn't mean to put you fellas out this way. Good luck to you, Borg. You'll see. It'll work. Maybe it'll work. Well. But I don't know. Martha. I'll get out of cancellation, Joe. I should wrap it up, huh? Yeah. What time did you say it was? It's 12.10. Yeah. Well, Joe, I better make a phone call first. This time of night? Why? What's the matter? I just remembered I told Faye I'd call her. Friday, July 28th. A month had passed since Henry Borg had left our office to go home. We'd heard nothing further from him or his wife. We assumed that they had reconciled their problems. 6.10 p.m. Officers? Oh, hello there, Borg. Nice to see you again. Hi, Borg. I was afraid maybe you fellas wouldn't remember me. It's been a while. I tried to get out and see you before this. Well, fine. How are things going? Did it work out like I said? I... Brought you something, Sergeant. Some cigarettes for both of you. Like you to have them. I hope it's the right brand. Well, yes, sir. That's the right brand, all right. But you don't owe us anything. I want you to have them. That's all right, sir. You keep them. All right. Well, anyway, here's that dollar. The one you loaned me. Okay, Borg. Thanks very much. I sure owe you fellas a lot, and I really mean it. My wife and I, we sure appreciate what you fellas did for us. Was that clock right? Yes, sir. Uh Uh-oh. Got a rush. Got an appointment. Be late if I don't hurry. Appointment? Yeah. Got to get over to Arthur Murray's. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 31st, a meeting was held in the office of the captain of Homicide. Since the subject, Henry George Borg, had committed no crime, he was not held and the case was officially marked closed. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Frazier. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Perrin, Irene Tedrow. Script by Paul Coates. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. From October 1953, that was Dragnet, the big revolt. Told you, told you that one had heart. Did that one surprise you? Did the ending surprise you? I thought it was pretty good. Pretty good. Vic Perrin showed a lot of versatility in that particular role. You don't usually think of him as having uh, doing accents so much. Uh, John Daner did a lot of them, but not so much Vic Perrin anyway. Very good episode. You know, Dragnet frequently, uh, Joe Friday frequently refers to the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. And having grown up out there, I don't remember the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. 
And so I wanted to look it up because I hear I hear him talk about that all the time. It ends up that out, at least in Los Angeles, police department usually acted as an ambulance. If somebody needed an ambulance, they'd send a police cruiser. It brings out in December of 1910, the receiving hospital became a department for the medical and surgical treatment of all persons brought to the city jail or receiving hospital and for the medical and surgical treatment of all policemen and firemen. Uh, Just some background, the first motorized ambulance under the receiving hospital system was in 1914. It was manned by two police officers. Through the years, one of the officers was replaced by a doctor or nurse. Sometime in the late 20s or early 30s, the remaining officer was replaced by an ambulance driver, and sometimes later, the doctor or nurse was assigned inside the receiving hospital and was also replaced on the unit by an ambulance attendant. The ambulance department back in those days was under the receiving hospital system, which I I guess, as I understand it, was under the police department. The uh, ambulance and crews were stationed at police stations and other locations for many years. The equipment was maintained by the police department. So I guess it was later, about the time I was a youngster, that this uh, whole system kind of went away. And they went to regular hospitals. But isn't that interesting? Apparently, a number of the police stations had receiving hospitals attached to them. There was uh, several. And Georgia Street, looking at the map in Los Angeles, is down around the Staples Center. It doesn't seem to be a very long street, but it's right in downtown, just off of downtown L.A. But anyway, just kind of an interesting thing, the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Hey, get a rhythm When you get the blues Come on, get a rhythm When you get the blues Get a rock and roll feeling in your bones Put taps on your toes and get gone Get a rhythm When you get the blues a little shoe shine boy, he never gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town. Bending low at the people's feet on a windy corner of a dirty street. Will I ask him while he shine my shoes? How to keep from getting the blues? He grinned as he raised his little head, he popped his shoe shine ragging, and he said, Get a rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. When you get the blues, a jumpy rhythm makes you feel so fine. It'll shake all your trouble from your worried mind. Get a rhythm when you get the blues. Get a rhythm When you get the blues Come on, get a rhythm When you get the blues Get a rock and roll feeling in your bones Put taps on your toes Get gone, get a rhythm When you get the blues well, I sat and I listened to the shoe shine boy, and I thought I was gonna jump with joy. Slapped on the shoe polish left and right, it took his shoe shine rag and he held it tight. He stopped once to wipe the sweat away. I said, You mighty little boy to be a working that way. He said, I like it with a big wide grin. Kept on a popping and he said again, Get a rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. 
When you get the blues, it only costs a dime just a nickel a shoe. It does a million dollars worth of good for you. Get rhythm. When you get the blues. Wow, Chester was clogging. I, I, I didn't know you knew how to do that, Chester. Boy, he was da- You should have seen him. He was up just a clog into that. That was. <laughs> I, that, that's amazing to watch people do that. I, Chester, you, you'll have to demonstrate. Show me how to do that sometime. Anyway, that's a, that's an early Johnny Cash song. That was one of my favorite songs of his, and that wasn't one that was played a lot, at least that I remember when I was a kid, maybe more on the country stations, because back in the 50s, Johnny Cash was a big, big crossover star. His uh, his songs were big on the on the pop charts as well as the uh, as the country charts. Johnny Cash. You know, in our fair town here of O'Fallon, they recently opened up a little skate park for the kids. It's free. It it's not one of these huge mungus uh, things. It's I don't know each one of the little hills. You know how they kids go up with their skateboards and with their bicycles up these hills and they do the little flips at the top and. Uh, they're probably four feet high, I guess, but it's all concrete. And as we watched them put it in, we thought to ourselves, oh, this isn't going to last very long because it's not supervised. It's just there in a park. And kids are there all the time riding their bikes up and down these hills and their skateboards, doing their tricks. I guess if they fall, it's just not very far to fall. But a lot of the kids, you watch them, they don't even wear helmets or anything. And there, like I said, there's no supervision there. But I drove by there today. It's uh, one of the days here in Missouri, early fall, where it's just beautiful. No humidity. It was 80 degrees. Gorgeous day. So I'm driving by there about 5 o'clock, and the kids are all out of school, and they're really having a ball. And I, I was just remembering skateboards when I was a kid. Now, we used to make our own skateboards. That was before anybody manufactured them. And what we would do is we would take an old board, like a one-by-one, and remember the old shoe skates that you had to have the skate key with the metal wheels, and the the skates were adjustable to fit on your shoe. You couldn't skate with tennis shoes. You had to have uh, shoes with hard uh, soles on so that the, the skate could grip the sides of your shoes. Do you remember those? Well, we used to take one of those skates and pull them apart and literally nail them onto the bottom of this board. And that was it, folks. That was our first uh, skateboards. And they were originally called Scobos. Probably that was just in in California. Scobos were the original skateboards. Then later, the kids in woodshop would make them in woodshop with like cedar wood or with teak wood or fancy woods, and they'd put stringers down, and then they would actually buy the nylon skates, I, I, or the nylon wheels. I think the only place you could get nylon wheels when I was a kid was in on an actual shoe skate, like if you went to the roller rink. I think those had nylon, or rubber. They weren't nylon. They were rubber, hard rubber. But I can remember there was a, a hill right outside our huge junior high school, ran down California Avenue. And you would get at the top of that hill, and it wasn't real steep, but it was long. It was like a city block long. And we would get on our skateboards and go down that hill, and there was, you know, several little bumps along the way. 
But we're talking about a one-by-one with with a skate with steel wheels. I think we also put a piece of carpet over the top of the board. And we, we would fly down that hill. Think nothing of it. Think nothing of it. It's amazing that we didn't get killed. Of course, back then, nobody wore any kind of helmets or elbow pads or knee pads or anything like that. I remember when we first moved to our home here in O'Fallon, we live uh, on a hill. And it's a fairly steep hill, much steeper than the hill I'm talking about, but it's not quite as long. But my boys got inline skates. That's when they first came out. And both Jeremy and Zach had inline skates. And I remember one day, they were flying down that hill. And this hill goes on for about the equivalent of a city block. And it starts off really steep. And then it kind of levels out, still going downhill. Well, I remember just as a parent now, it's a whole different thing when you're watching it as a parent, watching my kids flying down that hill. And I mean, they must have been doing 40 miles an hour. And I thought, oh my gosh, if one of them wiped out, it would be bad. But they didn't, just like we didn't. And I suppose the next generation won't. Anyway, just a kind of a nice memory. I remember that uh, all happened about the time surfing gained popularity. In fact, some people even referred to uh, skateboarding as sidewalk surf. Grab your board and go sidewalk surfing with me. Don't be afraid to try the newest sport around. Shoot the curve Bust your bird Bust your birds down Taking gas in a boost Takes a lot of nerve Those hopscotch Oh, that's and pedestrians too Bucket, chalk, I a bunk And now it's skate right on through Why don't you Grab your board and go sidewalk Surfing with me Something 
familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. Okay, it's time for our comedy corner, and tonight we are going to be listening to an episode of the Jack Benny Show from. Uh, looks like it's from March the fourth, nineteen fifty-one. This is a pretty good one. This has got all the good gags in it. Uh, it's got the operators in it. I love those. Uh, love those gals. It has um, really, as always, it's in two parts. The name of the episode is Jack Visits the Dentist or Jack Goes to the Dentist. That's pretty much in the second part. The first part of the show is much funnier, in my opinion. But this was a good one. So here it comes from March the 4th, 1951. This is the Jack Benny Show, Jack Goes to the Dentist. <laughs> The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go out to Jack Benny's house in Beverly Hills. I know he's home because his car is in the garage. Now, if you just follow me, we'll go in and pay Jack a visit. And you needn't ask me to leave, because you're going to sit there and listen to what I've got to say. Oh, better not go in. Seems to be some sort of a commotion going on. I haven't told you half what's on my mind. And believe me, I'm talking for everybody in this neighborhood. Why, when you first moved in, we thought you were a nice, gentle, kindly old man. <laughs> but before we knew it, you had the mortgages on all our houses. I don't blame you for not saying anything. All you can do is sit there with your mouth open. And why? Because even you know that that last trick you pulled was the cheapest, most abominable thing anybody ever did. Imagine putting a woman with seven children out on the sidewalk because she missed one payment. Rochester, turn off that radio. You have just heard another episode in that thrilling story, The Mean Old Man. In tomorrow's episode, you will hear the true... Thanks, Rochester. I don't know why you listen to that program, boss. It always upsets you. Well, I don't know where they get those fantastic ideas. I mean, nobody can be that cheap. Well... And that corny title, The Mean Old Man. It's ridiculous. I'll get it. Mr. Benny's residence, star, stage, screen, radio, and the only laundry service that... Huh? Oh, 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 hello, Miss Livingston. I almost wasted a commercial on you. Yeah, I'll put him on. It's Miss Livingston, boss. Thanks. Hello, Mary. How do you feel? What? A hundred? Mary, that's awful. That... Oh, your temperature. I thought you meant the doctor, Bill. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you're feeling better. And Mary, 
What? Oh, you're welcome, Mary. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'll call you tomorrow, honey. Goodbye. What you thank you for, boss? Well, everybody's been sending her flowers and fruit and candy, so I just thought I'd be a little different. What did you send her? A bowl of chili. <laughs> You know, it's good in this nippy weather. <laughs> anyway, it looks like Miss Livingston will be back on the program next week. That's good. Uh, if you don't need me anymore now, boss, I'll go to the library and finish working on your scrapbook. Oh, fine, fine, Rochester. You know, one of my biggest thrills is when I show my scrapbook to people. I know, boss. That's why I put the picture of you shaking hands with the King of England right on the front cover. Good, good. What's on the back cover? An ad. You sold a space to Manischewitz's wife. <laughs> That hunch all day. <laughs> I'm a man. Man. <laughs> well, Rochester, look at it. Face. <laughs> Face. I went over it with him a thousand times. Man is Shevitz. His man is Shevitz. And Rochester. Paste that picture of me playing the violin on the inside cover, would you? Oh, I can't. We've got that reserved for Serge hands. Oh. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You've got the only scrapbook that's been handled by Batten, Parson, Justin, and Osborne. <laughs> well, you go in the library and paste all my reviews in it. Yes, sir. Uh, I'll get it. Be my love. Da dee da dee da 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 da. Be my love. Dum 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 dee da da. Well, hello, Mr. Brown. Hello, Mr. Benny. I'm sorry I'm three days late with the rent on our house, but here it is. Oh, thank you. By the way, Mr. Benny, our hot water heater is leaking. Do you think maybe you could have it fixed? Well, see, plumbing costs are awfully high now, you know. I guess they are, but it's been months since you promised to paint the living room. Well... I uh... fixed the hole in the roof myself. Well, good, good. Well, I guess I'll be running along. Goodbye, Mr. Benny. Oh, oh, by the way, Mr. Brown, how's your wife? I mean, what's she doing now? Oh, haven't you heard? She writes that radio program, The Mean Old Man. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. I listen to it every day. Your wife has quite an imagination. Yeah, yeah, imagination. <laughs> huh? Goodbye, Mr. Benny. Goodbye. Who was it, boss? Uh, Mr. Brown from Long Beach. Oh, you know, he's been complaining a long time about a hole in the roof. It's fixed, it's fixed. But, boss, I don't remember you sending anyone down to fix it. If I say it's fixed, it's fixed. If you don't believe me, listen to tomorrow's episode and you'll find out. <laughs> By the way, Rochester, has my television script arrived from CBS? No, not yet, boss. I don't know what's holding it up. I got so much memorizing to do. Now, that must be it now. Come in. Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, it's you, Dennis. Come on in. Thank you. How do you feel, kid? Oh, fine, thanks. How are your folks? They're fine, too. That's good. Especially my father. After six months, they finally took the cast off his foot. In a cast for six months? Uh-huh. Dennis, what was wrong with your father's foot? Oh, nothing. He stepped in a bucket of cement. <laughs> Oh, 
for heaven's sake. Look, kid, I can understand your father stepping in a bucket of cement. I can almost understand him standing there and letting the cement dry. But why? I mean, why would he keep it on his foot for six months? Well, my mother made him. What? When he stayed out late at night, he couldn't tiptoe into the house. (laughs) That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Imagine your mother making him keep his foot in a bucket for six months. Oh, two weeks ago, it came in handy. How? They were invited to a masquerade, and Papa went as a potted palm. (laughs) Look, kid, do me a favor, will you? What? As long as you've got your mouth open, sing, don't talk. Okay. Manischewitz is one. very good. Gee, thank you. You know, I can't understand you, kid. You come in here and talk, and when you talk, you sound so ridiculous. And then you sing. And when you sing, you're a completely different person. Gee, I mean, what are you, a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Uh-huh, and each one has his own show. <laughs> Well, 
What? The doctor's on another network. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, so long, Mr. Benny. Goodbye, kid. Oh, say, Mr. Benny. Now what? Can I have your permission to do a guest spot tomorrow on a dramatic program? Dramatic program? What's the name of it? The Mean Old Man. <laughs> hmm. They got a wonderful part for me where I fix a hole in the roof. Do it, do it. <laughs> goodbye, goodbye. Oh, Rochester. Yes, boss. Are you sure my television script hasn't arrived yet? Not yet. Well, I'm going to call CBS and see what's holding it up. Happens all the time. Got to rehearse it. You got to memorize it. CBS, the star's address. What? All right, all right. You don't have to shout. The line is busy now. Hold on. Where's the guy, Truth? Jack Benny. Oh. Well, what does Tennessee Schmaltz want now? <laughs> he wants I should get him the mimeograph department. So, why were you so fresh to him? Why was I so fresh to him? The other night he called and asked me if he could pick me up and take me dancing at the Macombo. And then he got mad because when he called for me, I was wearing my overalls. Well, I don't blame him for being mad. Why would you wear overalls to the Macombo? Who gets to the Macombo? I always wind up fixing his car. <laughs> well, you're better off than I am. Why? I'm not mechanical-minded, and I have to get out and push. <laughs> Have you been out with Jack lately? Yeah, two weeks ago. He took me to a nightclub. We sat at a corner, and the lights were low, and he got so romantic. <laughs> what did he do? He drank Hattacol out of my slipper. <laughs> See, that's funny. He usually drinks Manischewitz's wine. <laughs> the open town. <laughs> well, with the hat call, you must have had the happiest feet in town. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I've been thinking? Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so fussy about men. I guess you're right. After all, we're not getting any younger. Speak for yourself, John. I'm only 23. <laughs> 23? Then how did you get that medal for sticking to your switchboard during the San Francisco fire? <laughs> Why should I lie? You were there. <laughs> yeah? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Benny. The line is still busy. Your television script? I'll tell him. Goodbye. That'll give me a draft. Let me draft apartment drives me nuts. That script should have been here. Hey, maybe that's it. Come in. Oh, hello, Don. Hello, Jack. Don. Don, what's the matter? Oh, nothing, nothing. Now, Don, don't try to kid me. There's something bothering you. What is it? Oh, it's the sportsman quartet. They're mad at me. The four of them? Yeah, they're outside and they won't come in because I'm here. Well, that's ridiculous. Come on in, fellas. 
Hello, boys. Hmm. Hello, boys. See, they won't talk to me. Yeah. And they have such a wonderful idea for next week's commercial. Haven't you, boys? Have you? Hmm. Now, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard. Now, Don, why are they mad at you? They found out that you pay me more money than you pay them. Well, that's a fine thing to be mad about. Now, wait a minute, Jack. I think they've got a point there. But, Don, you should get more money than the quartet. You've been with me 17 years. But, Jack, sentiment shouldn't enter into this. After all, there are four of them. But, Don, every year you've been picked as radio's outstanding announcer. I know, Jack, but now let's be fair about it. They work hard, too. And I believe that they should get the same salary I get. Well, Don, if you feel that strongly about it, there should be an adjustment. I mean, how much am I paying the quartet now? A hundred dollars a week. Oh. Well, Don, if it'll make you feel better starting next week, I'll cut you down to the same. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Jack. That solves the whole thing. Now there won't be any more trouble. <laughs> it's amazing that I didn't think of that myself. Well, Don, now that it's all settled, what's this song the boys have? Well, Jack, you know, in the past few weeks, everybody seems to be catching cold. So they're a little worried about you, and they want you to take care of yourself. Oh, isn't that sweet? Let's hear it, fellas. Button up your overcoat when the wind is free. Take good care of yourself. Careful, Mr. B. Eat an apple every day, go to bed by three. Take good care of yourself, pass an NBC. Be careful in the breeze. Ooh. Watch it, please. Ooh. Or you'll sneeze. Ooh. Don't get the flu and ruin your program. If you're ever feeling bad, call a doctor, too. Take good care of yourself, cause we all love you. When you're buying cigarettes, buy the brand you like. Take good care of yourself, smoke a lucky strike. When you're driving in a car or you're on a hike, take good care of yourself, smoke a lucky strike. There'll be no puff that's rough. Ooh, sure enough. Ooh, no man of the is wine. Why not be happy and go lucky? For that rich tobacco taste, smoke the best you see. Brown firm, fully packed, fellas, MFT. was very good, fellas, and I hope you're not mad at Don anymore. I'm sure they're not, Jack, and thanks again for making that adjustment. You're welcome, Don. I'm sure you won't have any more trouble. Goodbye. So long, Jack. <laughs> so happy. Be my love. Be my love. Well, I saved a little money by cutting Don's salary, but I lost a little, too. After all, I'm his agent. <laughs> Oh, well. Now, let's see. Well, here I am, boss. Rochester, how'd you know I was going to call you? You ain't going to get any funny answers out of that bridge lamp. <laughs> oh, yes. 
How's my scrapbook coming along? It's all finished, boss. I put a title on the cover. A title on my scrapbook? What do you call it? Across the River and Into the Bank. <laughs> Say, that's pretty good. Yeah, the bridge lamp never would have thought of that. I know, I know. Now, put away the pace and... I'll get it. Be my love. Well... The boys from the Beverly Hills Beavers, Joey, Stevie, and Butch, and, and... This is Butch's mother. Oh, hello, Mrs. Broderick. Won't you come in? Mm, thank you. I hope we're not intruding, Mr. Benny, but the boys insisted I come here. You see, Butch idolizes you so much, and... And, and what, Mrs. Broderick? Uh, it's like this, Mr. Benny. Butch has a tooth with a cavity in it. It's got to be pulled, and he's afraid to go to the dentist. Is that right, Butch? My tooth don't hurt. Mr. Benny, I'm sure if you told him to go, he would You see, you're his hero I am? Yes, in fact, I'm kind of thrilled myself Talking to the man who used to play football under the name of Red Grange (laughs) Well... Nothing, Stevie. Butch, let me look at your tooth. Now open your mouth. Mm-mm. Now come on, now Butch, come on, open your mouth. Mm-mm. Now Butch, that's no way to act. You yourself said when you grow up, you want to be just like Mr. Benny. Yeah. If you're brave and have your tooth pulled, maybe someday you too will be on the Harvard rowing team. <laughs> Butch, uh, let me see your tooth. Oh, Mr. Benny, were you on the Harvard rowing team? Butch, Butch, let me see your tooth. Mr. Benny, tell Butch's mother about the day you won the ring with God all by yourself. Butch, Butch, let me look at your tooth. <laughs> Mr. Benny not only won the rowing regatta, but he knocked a home run at the Yankee Stadium at the same time. <laughs> Butch, please let me look at your tooth. Mr. Benny, how could you be rowing and still hit a home run in the Yankee Stadium? Well, uh, uh... He had a long arc. <laughs> It was one of the... Rochester, what are you doing here? Making notes. I'm starting a new scrapbook. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, m- Mr. Benny, would you mind coming down to the dentist's office with us? It's just around the corner. Dr. Kearns. Oh, oh, Dr. Kearns, yes. That's the only way I'll get Butch in the dentist's chair. Well, I'll be glad to go along. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Broderick, how much do you expect to pay to have Butch's tooth pulled? <laughs> oh, I'd say about five dollars. Five dollars. Oh, Rochester. No, no, boss. The pliers are rusty. <laughs> I didn't call you for that. I just wanted to tell you I'm taking Butch to the dentist. Now, come on, Butch. My tooth don't hurt. Now, come, come on, on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Well, here's Dr. Kern's office. Let's go in. Come, children. Yes? I'm Mrs. Broderick. I called a while ago. Oh, yes, yes. Which one is to have his tooth pulled? The one playing with the yo-yo or the one with the propeller on his hat? The one with the yo-yo. The one with the propeller is Mr. Benny. (laughs) Oh. Well, Mrs. Broderick, the doctor will be with you in a moment. Thank you. Now, look, Butch. Butch, after you get your tooth pulled, you should see your dentist twice a year and brush your teeth twice a day. 
Remember that, Butch, and you'll never have any more trouble. Hey, Butch, be sure the dentist gives you some of that stuff Mr. Benny invented, that penicillin. (laughs) Yes, yes. I don't want to get my tooth pulled. Look, Butch, there's really nothing to it. Having a tooth pulled is a very simple... Next, please. You may take them in now, Mrs. Broderick. Come, Butch. I don't want to have my tooth pulled. It's all hurt. I don't want it pulled. Now, now, wait a minute, Butch. Wait a minute. Now, I'll, I'll be right back. Uh, may I talk to you, Doctor? Why, certainly. Now, look, Doc, I want to show Butch that having a tooth pulled doesn't hurt at all. Well, it really doesn't. I know, but we've got to convince Butch. So I'll sit in the chair, and you make believe that you're pulling my tooth, and I'll make a big nothing out of it. (laughs) That's an excellent idea. All right, come sit right down in the dentist's chair. Now, look, Butch, I'm going to have my tooth pulled. Isn't that right, Doctor? Yes. Come, Mr. Benny, open your mouth. Watch this, Butch. Ah. See, Butch? Nothing to it. Uh, Would you please open your mouth again, Mr. Benny? (laughs) Huh? Open your mouth. Ah. Mmm. What is it, Doctor? What is it? What is it? Oh, nurse. Yes, Doctor? Prepare the Novocaine. What? A third tooth from the end, the bicuspid. It has to come out. But I don't want to get my tooth pulled. It doesn't hurt. Honest doctor doesn't hurt. I don't want to get my tooth pulled. Go ahead, Doc. I'm holding them. Look. Look, let me go. Here's the Novocaine, Doctor. Thank you, nurse. Doctor, you can't do this to me. There. There, it's out. Oh, boy. Look at that propeller spin. Ooh. Now, Butch, let me look at your tooth. Come on, open your mouth. I don't want it. Come on, Butch, open your mouth. No. Open that big mouth or I'll bash your head in. <laughs> okay. Uh... Hmm. There's nothing wrong with your tooth, Sonny. Oh, but, Doctor, look how black it is. He's been eating licorice. What? And, Mr. Benny, for pulling your tooth, that will be $5. You can deduct it from next month's rent. Come on, kids, let's get out of here. Ooh. Rochester, get me another ice bag. Yes, sir. And get me two more aspirins. Yes, sir. Ooh. You know, boss, for a man who scored a touchdown with his own kickoff, you're making an awful fuss. Never mind that. Get me the ice bag. Okay, Red. <laughs> hmm. Good night, Dow. <laughs> That was the Jack Benny Show from 1951, March the 4th, 1951. Jack goes to the dentist. You know, one of the things I found interesting in that particular show was uh, Dennis singing the Tennessee Waltz. I've always loved the Tennessee Waltz. And I kind of had in mind that the Tennessee Waltz went back a long time. It was one of those songs maybe that was around during the Civil War or something. Doesn't it sort of have that sound to that? But 
Actually, it, it wasn't. The song was uh, written by Jimmy Wilkinson and sold to Pee Wee King, who released the first recording on RCA in 1948. Uh, Jimmy Wilkinson, I'm just reading some notes here, was the upright bass player for Pee Wee King's Golden West Cowboys. Patty Page was familiar with the song because it was one of the favorites of her father. So she made her recording of the song, but when she recorded it, it was with the intention it would be the B-side of a single, Boogie Woogie Santa Claus. After the record was released, Patty Page had thought Boogie Woogie Santa Claus would be the big hit, but all of the MCs out there on the radio, uh, various radio stations, started uh, choosing to play Tennessee Waltz. And eventually, her recording made it onto the Billboard Pop Music Chart on November 10th, 1950, and it stayed there for 30 weeks. And it reached number one. I believe it was uh, December 30th, 1950. It stayed there till the 24th of February. What's kind of interesting is the the song that it bumped off of the number one spot was a song called The Thing by Phil Harris. While I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box a-floating in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a... Right before my eyes, oh, I discovered it. Right before my eyes, I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop, oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. I turned around and got right out of running for my life. And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a hand out on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. Oh, when I showed him the... He turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate, until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Get out of here with that and take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that and take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you. Cause you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. That was Phil Harris with his big uh, number one hit from 1950 entitled The Thing. Yes, we do love our comedy. On our last show, we played a... Uh, cut from one of the early Bob Newhart comedy albums, and I got a lot of nice compliments about it. Uh, 
people really like remembering some of those routines that we used to listen to on records back in the 60s and 70s. And two of the guys that used to crack us up the very most were these two, the Smothers Brothers. We would like to do a ballad, my brother and myself, combining our voices as once, once we did long ago. And sing days. a ballad entitled Machaya. What? Machaya. <laughs> Machaya is an Israeli folk no, song no, no, describing wrong, the wrong. incredible... Wait a minute. What, mar- it's not Machaya, it's Mariah. It's Machaya. No, no, no. It's, it's Machaya. No, no, excuse me. It's Mariah, it's not Machaya. You just about said Machaya. Yeah, but I was thinking it's Mariah and it's not Israeli you folk don't song. Des- it's not an Israeli folk song. It is. It's an Israeli folk it is song. Not. It's, a, it's not from Israel. It's Dutch. It's an old Dutch folk song from Holland. And they, it's entitled, They Call the Wind Mariah. Not Machaya. <laughs> this is an, we'd like to do for you, it, it's an old Dutch folk song. Right. From the Israeli section of Holland. <laughs> and it tells how important the wind is. And working the windmills in this section of Holland. Five five-starred windmills blown by the wind and it's also though a love story a beautiful love story about this young couple very much in love skipping gaily across grass-covered slopes hand in hand and the story actually tells how they're having a picnic under one of these great five-winged windmills the sky was blue and love shone out of the young bright eyes as they looked in the skies and saw the bluebirds singing and then The boy had to leave his girl, and he went away. And when he came back, he went away. See, he went away and left his love underneath the windmill, and when he came back, she'd got caught in the blades. (laughs) That's terrible. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, she's all right now, though. Oh, (laughs) fine. They call the wind Mariah. The rain is Tess, the fire is Joe, and they call the wind Mariah. High up blows the stars around it and sets the clouds to flying. Mariah makes the mountain sound like pops was up there dying. She had me and the sun was always shining Then one day I left my gal I left her far behind me And now I'm lost, so called and lost Not even God can find Out 
got to name Green and fiber only But when you're lost and all alone Well, there ain't no name for lonely Well, I'm a lost and lonely man Without a star to guide me Mariah, blow my love to me I need my gal beside me Yes, it is time for Gunsmoke, everybody. And boy, do we have a good one this week. This one comes to us from 1954, December the 4th. It's a John Meston script, and it's one of the types of scripts that he did so well and that it's filled with irony. Really, this one could almost be a Shakespearean story or a story from the Bible. It's talking about comeuppance and... Uh, how things get equaled out. Great irony in this one. So anyway, this comes to us, um, as I said, by courtesy of Mr. Meston. It features Ralph Moody, Virginia Christine, Vic Perrin, Clayton Post, and Sam Edwards, and of course our regular great crew of William Conrad, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, and uh, Georgia Ellis. Howard McNear is featured uh, in this one pretty much as Doc. This one has really, really good sound quality on it. So enjoy it. I got this from Jerry Hendigas. And if you want good quality sound uh, on your radio shows, uh, get them from Jerry because, boy, this one's outstanding. So here it comes. 
from December the 4th, 1954. This is Gunsmoke, and the name of this episode is Collar. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Chester, will you take this stuff down to the depot and see that it gets in the mail for me, huh? Yes, sir. Now, what's he doing? Huh? What's who doing? Old man McCready's boy, Mr. Dillon. What's he doing, anyway? Well, you're the one who's looking out the window, Chester. Well, he ain't up to no good. Look at him. Well, I guess I'd better, or I'll never find out. Oh, he's jumping on his horse. There he goes. Well, what was he doing, Chester? Pulling around that wagon team there. He was messing with the traces for some reason. Oh, well, let's go have a look. You know, that Billy McCready always was a wild one. Uh, he's young, Chester, and he's only got his old man to bring him up. I'm sure, he'll probably grow up to be just as mean as old man is. Well, I hope not. I wonder whose wagon this is, anyway. I don't know, Mr. Dillon. Ain't much wagon, though, is it? Must belong to some starving sod buster. Chester. Mm-hmm. Come here. Look, that's what Billy was doing. Well, he's got them traces half cut, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. They'll still hold for quite a few miles. Enough to leave whoever's driving this wagon a long way out on the prairie. Well, now, why would Billy do a thing yeah. like that? What are you fellas doing with that harness? Oh, is this your wagon, Mr... It's our wagon. Me and my wife's here. What are you men doing with it? Oh, your traces have been cut, man. Cut? What do you mean? Come here, take a look. Well, who done that? Billy McCready. I told you, Jim. I told you something was going to happen. What's Billy McCready got against you people? Don't you tell them nothing, Jim. Ain't none of their business. Look, I'm a U.S. Marshal, ma'am. Maybe I can help you. You, Marshal Dillon? That's right. Tell them our name, Jim. It's Gabriel. I got a quarter section near Sky Mound. Oh? Well, that's on the way to McCready's ranch, isn't it? Marshal, McCready can have all the land he wants, except mine. I filed on that land eight months ago, and I've been living on it like the law says, and I've been proving it up. It's mine. 
And he ain't gonna get it. Well, hasn't McCready got enough land for his cattle out there without needing yours? It ain't land so much as the water, Marshal. I've opened me a spring and I've dug a well. It's the water he wants. They're trying to hound us off there, Marshal. Yeah, like Billy cutting our traces. They figured we'd lose the team on the way home, I guess. Who's they? The old man and Billy? Old man don't come around. It's Billy and one of them riders, Bark. Real ornery-looking fella. They're the ones. But it's McCready tells them what to do. They're going to start plaguing us real bad now. And I'll fight them. Me and the boy will stop them. Oh, you got a son? He's down buying grain. We're picking him up on the way out of town. Ah. Well, you better mend those traces first. Yeah. Look, uh, Gabriel, I think Chester and I better ride out with you, huh? Maybe we can find out what uh, Billy had in mind. It was dark by the time we got to the Gabriel place. And when we did, we saw lamps burning inside the house. At first, Gabriel thought his wife's sister and her family had arrived from back east. But then we noticed three horses standing outside. Families came west by wagon, not horseback. So I told the boy to take their team around to the shed while Gabriel and his wife walked into the house as though they suspected nothing. They left the door open. Chester and I got down and sneaked up to where we could hear what was happening. I hope they don't get hurt, Mr. Dillon. And Gabriel seems like good people. Quiet now, Chester. Get back here so soon, keep out Gabriel. Of the Same way we got the dog in our wagon. That old man McCready, Mr. Dillon. Billy, you've been lying to me. No, Pa. I've done what you told me. Honest, I did. You shut up about what I told you. No matter none, Mr. McCready. Nobody's going to believe nothing that Gabriel say. Why don't you give up and go back east, wherever you come from, Gabriel? There's too many people out here already. And there's more coming right here, too. What? My wife's sister and her husband. And they're bringing the little girl with them. One more man to fight, huh? All right, Gabriel, I'll tell you something. You must have noticed your harness being cut and fixed it. There, he admits Otherwise, you'd be out on the prairie somewhere learning your first lesson. When you did get home, you were going to find this place wrecked. We've been sitting here resting some before we got to work on it. It ain't too late, Mr. McCready. Sure, Pa. Let them watch us wreck it. Might be more interesting that way. Maybe you're right, son. Maybe that'll learn them. Okay, get over there in the you're corner, ready, Gabriel. Justin. I you sure am, Mr. Dillon. Right over there. Now. Evening, McCready. Bart, you move your hand any closer to that gun and I'll shoot it off. I ain't doing nothing. What are you doing out here, Marshal? Same thing I'd be doing if I was in Dodge, McCready, enforcing the law. Well, what are you bothering us for? Can we drop in here for a neighborly visit without everybody making a fuss? You're bad as Gabriel. You've been talking a real while. You ought to hear him. I did hear him, McCready. I heard you, too. Huh? Well, that don't mean nothing. You can't jail a man for talking. You're sure shy at the idea of going to jail, don't you, McCready? When I first come out here, there wasn't no jails. Gabriel tells me that you've stayed out of this business so far. You've let Bart and Billy do the talking for you. What they do, I'll take the blame for. You bet you will. And the first thing that goes wrong out here, any trouble at all, you're the one that's going to jail first, McCready. All right, now you get out of here. All three of you. 
Come on, boys. Stinks in here anyways. Well, you sure made the old man tuck his tail, Marshal. Don't you be so sure, Jim. McCready's as smart as he's mean. I'm afraid you're right, ma'am. He'll think of something. But as soon as you find out what it is, you'll let me know. Hello, Doc. Well, come on, sit down. Unless you're in a hurry to get to your uh, hospital. <laughs> my hospital? <laughs> my, oh, Matt, my <laughs> hospital. Oh, well, if the day comes when I'm in a hurry to get to my hospital, you'll be warden of the Dodge City Penitentiary. <laughs> hey, well, that sounds like a nice, warm inside job, Doc. Yeah, and I hope you get it, too, Matt. <laughs> uh-uh. And when you do, I hope old man McCready there is your first customer. McCready? Oh. Oh, I see him. Uh, he sees you, too. Guess he wants to talk to you. Well, like he says, I can't jail him for talking. Morning, Marshal. Doc? Hello. Oh, what can I do for you, McCready? Nothing, Marshal. Can a man stop and say hello? Sure. Sure. All right, what's on your mind? All right, then, I'll tell you. I've been thinking about it all week. So I went over to the land office to see if Gabriel's claim is filed proper. Mm-hmm. That is it. Maybe. Maybe not. But I'll find a way, Marshal. Look, McCready, you got plenty of grass out there. You got the whole prairie. Sure, but Gabriel's camping on the only piece that's got good water. Well, go look for some springs yourself. That's what he did. Marshal! Hey, Marshal! It's Gabriel. See, he sure got that horse in the lather. Yeah, you stay right here, McCready. I ain't done nothing to him. Oh, Doc. Doc, it's you I was looking for. What's wrong, Gabriel? It's my boy. He's sick. He's awful sick. You gotta come, Doc. Why, what's the matter with him? I don't know. But my wife's sister, she got here a few days ago from back east, and their little girl was sick the same way, and she died the first night before I could even get started for Dodge. Oh, what's it like, Gabriel? Uh, How's he showing? Well, he gets awful cramps in his legs, mostly... And he turns kind of blue all over, and he can't talk much. Turns blue? Does his stomach hurt? It's something terrible. He's always yelling for water, but it don't seem to do no good. Uh-huh. And this is the same thing the little girl died of? It's just like it. He ain't going to die too easy, Doc. I'll do what I can for him, Gabriel. What is it, Doc? Uh, some kind of a poison? I hope I'm wrong, Matt. But those symptoms are pretty plain. Sounds like cholera to me. What? Cholera. Yes. That little girl and her family must have brought it from back east. Gabriel, you're right back home right now. Tell your wife to burn all the clothes and the blankets and anything the little girl touched. And make everybody keep away from your boy as much as possible, you understand? And whatever you do, don't get anything you feed him out of mixed up with yours. Keep it separate. Cholera is mighty contagious. You can all catch it. I'll tell him. I'll tell him you were coming. I'll hurry. Well... Ain't no business of mine. I'm going on out to the ranch. Goodbye, gentlemen. McCready wouldn't care if they all died. No, I guess he wouldn't, Doc. Uh, I'll walk you down to your office, huh? It's going to take me a little time to get ready. It's bad, Matt. 
cholera is real bad. You're worried tonight, Matt. No, it's just that I can't help thinking about the Gabriels, Kitty. That's a terrible thing. Those poor people. Look, uh, don't say anything about it around here, though, huh? I wouldn't want to get a panic started. Oh, of course I won't, Matt. But do you think there's any danger of it spreading to Dodge? Well, Doc says not as long as the family stays out of town. But they might catch it from each other. They ought to burn everything Mrs. Gabriel's sister brought with her. Well, that's what Doc said, Kitty. Well, for once I'm right. Because it makes sense, I guess. Yeah. I, uh... i never been around cholera. Have you? No. No, but I've heard a lot about it. Seems to me in this job I've heard a lot about practically everything there is. <laughs> and a lot there isn't, too, of it. Oh, I'll say. Hey, Marshal! Marshal! Gabriel, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for Doc. Where is he? Doc? Oh, he never showed up, Marshal. And I just can't find him no place. Well, he should have been there this afternoon. Well, that's what I figured. And then come dark, I got worried. My boy's worse, Marshal. I just got to find him, even if it is the middle of the night. Well, he left here. What could have happened to him, Marshal? Well, I got a pretty good idea. Come on, Gabriel. I'm riding back with you. Your place is right on the way to where I'm headed. Where's that? McCready's. <laughs> my house, Marshal, but I don't see Doc's buggy nowhere. Well, he came horseback, Gabriel. I doubt if he's here, though. Yeah, it must be eight, nine o'clock already. Well, it was after two when we left Dodge last night. We made good time, though. Oh, there's your wife. Yeah, she's going to be awful disappointed. How's the boy, Jenny? Wait. Oh, I couldn't find Doc. I have an idea of where he is, Miss Gabriel, and I'm riding on to find him. I know where Doc is, Marshal. You do? I figured it all out after my husband left for Dodge last night. It's easy. There's nothing in the world would keep Doc from coming when someone's sick. Except one thing. What, Jenny? Somebody stopped him from coming. Oh. Well, that's what the Marshal figured, but I didn't want to worry you about it. Miss Gabriel, if McCready's holding Doc somewhere, he isn't going to hold him long. I promise you that. He wants us all dead. And he'll keep Doc till we are. Except I got him beat. Well, what do you mean? I'll tell you in a minute. Look what's coming behind you. Hey, it's McCready and that fellow Bart. I'm going to get my rifle. No, Gabriel. No, wait. They're not going to start any trouble. Well, they'd better not. Morning, Gabriel. Miss Gabriel. Marshal. Hello. Uh, come out to help, Marshal. Yeah, that's right. Well, me and Bart thought we'd ride over and see if there wasn't anything we could do. I mean it. I'm trying to be neighbors. Get back on your horse, McCready, and show me where you got Doc hit out. What? 
Doc's here, ain't he? What are you talking about? I said get back on your horse. Bart, you tense one more muscle, and I'm going to take it. You're going for your gun. All I'm doing is breathing. All right. Now we're wasting time, McCready. Now wait, Marshal. I don't know nothing about Doc. Listen to me, you men. The Marshal's right. We're wasting time. But I can save some. How? Where's your boy, McCready? He's at the ranch. He don't feel good. Why? He come by here yesterday, late, after my husband started for Dodge. After I got everything figured. Said he'd been away on the prairie a couple of days. He told me he was here. He didn't cause you no trouble. No, he didn't. Not much trouble to bring a man a cup of water. Well, that's all he wanted. I suppose you wouldn't give him any. I gave him some. I went in the house and got it for him. And what are you complaining about? Didn't he thank you pretty enough? My son's in there, McCready. And he's been drinking water, too. Lots of it. He and Billy. They used the same cup. Doc said don't let nobody touch what your boy used. My husband told me what Doc said. Billy ain't feeling good. He's got it. He's got cholera off in that cup. I expect he has. Cholera... Now I reckon you'll turn Doc loose. Billy will die. Sure he'll die without Doc. No. It's up to you, McCready. All right. I admit it. We're holding Doc. Where is he, McCready? In a cabin I got five, six miles from here. We took him, me and Bart. We put on bandanas and we didn't say nothing so he wouldn't recognize us. He's there, locked in tight. Like I said, McCready, get on your horse. Sure. Sure, but let's hurry. expected to find Doc fighting wild when we reached the cabin, but instead he was pale, sober, and as calm as I'd ever seen him. And when McCready demanded that he go take care of Billy first, Doc didn't even answer him. He just mounted his horse and quietly asked me to lead him to the way to Gabriel's. When we got there, McCready sent Bart off to see how Billy was doing, and then sat down with Chester and me in the dirt outside the cabin and waited. It was a long, late in the afternoon when Doc finally came out. And he walked over to us. How is he, Doc? Any better? He's dead, Chester. Dead? Died about a half an hour ago. I've been telling the family what they've got to do to keep from catching it themselves. You already told Gabriel that back in Dodge, Doc. Haven't they done what you said? No. I didn't think they would without my coming out here and prodding them. It's hard for people to burn what few clothes and things they have, Matt. Yeah. Come on, Doc. Now the boy's dead. Let's get over to my place. We're wasting time, John, here. McCready. Hey, look. Ain't that Bart coming? Yeah, that's Bart. Guess he got tired waiting for us. Shouldn't have left Billy alone, though. How are the Gabriels taking it, Doc? Hard to say, Matt. They aren't talking much and they aren't crying at all. That's about what I'd expect. They're pretty lean people. It's a good thing they are. 
What are you doing here, Bart? Why didn't you stay with Billy? We're about to leave now. Mr. McCready. But what is it, Bart? What are you trying to say? Billy's dead. Died right there in his bed. I couldn't do nothing for him. He's dead. I didn't know what to do for him. He got all blue. And real cold. And he choked up and died. Doc should have been there. I should have made him go. It's your fault, Doc. Chester? Yeah, Doc? Go into the house and tell the Gabriels to come out here. All right, Doc. And tell them about Billy McCready. I don't want to see them, Gabriels. I don't ever want to see them. If they'd never come here, my boy would be alive now. He's too young to die. Billy's too young. It ain't right. It just ain't right. I've done all I could, Mr. McCready. I put blankets on them. I straightened him out when he cramped up. I poured a lot of water into him. It ain't your fault, Bart. You ain't a doctor. How would you know what to do? You didn't kill him. That's enough of that talk, McCready. Why don't you shut up? It wasn't your son that died, Marshal. It was mine. Here come the Gabriels. Their son died, too, you remember? Yeah, yeah. You won't, Doc. I want to explain something to you and to Mrs. Gabriel. Now, don't you start preaching, Doc. I ain't in no mood to listen to your talk. You'll listen, McCready, if I have to ram a stick in your mouth and tie you against that tree over there. All right, go on, Doc. First, I want to ask Mrs. Gabriel something. Chester told me about Billy, Doc. Looks like I killed him. No. You only wanted him to get sick so as McCready would have to turn me loose. You thought he'd do that right away so I could save your boy and Billy, too. Could have saved Billy. He hadn't come here first. No, that's where you're all wrong. What do you mean? Medicine's still a pretty crude science, Mrs. Gabriel. Someday, maybe they'll know, but right now I've got no more idea how to treat cholera than I do insanity. There's absolutely nothing I know to do for it. That's true, Doc. It's true. And I did kill Billy. Killed him with my own hand. No, Mrs. Gabriel. If you'd known I couldn't help him, you'd never let him touch that cup. No. No, of course I wouldn't. Oh, I never would have. It's McCready that's the murderer. He hoped keeping me away from here would see you all dead. That's what he wanted. But all McCready's going to get for his murder in ways is the death of his own son. So you think about it, McCready, the rest of your life. And remember what it says in the Bible? The Lord does have his way of vengeance. After all, doesn't he? All right, come on, everybody. Let's get to work. Let's see what we can do to keep anybody else from catching this.
transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Ralph Moody, Virginia Christine, Vic Perrin, Clayton Post, and Sam Edwards. Farley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Hi, everyone. This is Perry Como, and I'd like to remind you that we're on for Chesterfield with all the top tunes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. This coming week, we'll be doing our new RCA Victor release, Home for the Holidays, a song that we all feel really expresses the spirit of the season. We hope that you'll join us. And don't forget those Chesterfields. Pick up a carton for the weekend. You'll enjoy them. Remember, listen again next week for another story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. Brought to you by L&M Filters. This is the CBS Radio Network. Wasn't that a good episode? Very well written script, very well produced. I just imagine what it must have been like back on a cold December evening. December the 4th, it is, 1954. Maybe your family hadn't purchased a television set yet. They were expensive. So there you were in the family room, gathered around the old Philco radio. And maybe mom had made some hot chocolate, and you were all gathered together on that cold Saturday night to listen to Gunsmoke. Hmm, how cool is that? Oh, we've got lots in common where it really counts, where it really counts. We've got large amounts. What we look like doesn't count an ounce. We've got lots in common where it really counts. You've got feathers, I've got skin, but both our outsides hold us in. I've got hooves, you've got web feet, but we both stand up to you. Cause we've got lots in common where it really counts. Where it really counts. We've got large amounts. What we look like doesn't count an ounce. We've got lots in common where it really counts. You've got a beak and I've a snout, but the both of us can sniff about. You'll say quack and I'll say nay, but we're talking either way. Cause we've got lots in common where it really counts, where it really counts. We've got large amounts. What we look like doesn't count an ounce. 
We've got lots in common where it really counts. You're born to swim and me to spin, but we both love this world we're in. We share the sun, the earth, the sky, and that's the reason why we've all got lots in common where it really counts, where it really counts. We've got large amounts. Why we look like doesn't count in us. We've got lots in common where it song was from the uh, 1973 cartoon movie Charlotte's Web. And I remember my wife and I were watching that movie on television in 1976, the night she went into labor to deliver Seth, our first firstborn. So I, as a kid, I read Charlotte's Web, and I remember it was the first book I ever read that really moved me. It was a story that I was invested in. And, spoiler alert, (laughs) Charlotte dies at the end. Charlotte is a big gray spider. Wilbur, of course, is the pig. Uh, Fern is the little girl. Templeton is the rat. And, oh, just it was just a wonderful, wonderful story by E.B. White, who was really a a columnist, a writer for the... uh, not Saturday Evening Post. What did he write for? New Yorker? Or was it the Saturday? Well, anyway, he was a well-known New York writer, and he wrote uh, many things. But among them, he wrote these children's books. Stuart Little was good, but Charlotte's Web is a classic. And you know, I'm around elementary school kids a lot these days, and every kid there, especially the girls, still are reading Charlotte's Web and enjoying it every bit as much as I did when I was a kid. Wonderful, wonderful book. And the 73 movie, unfortunately, it wasn't done by Disney. So the artwork wasn't that great, I didn't think. But the songs were written by the Sherman Brothers, the same ones that did uh, Mary Poppins and a lot of the uh, uh, Disney movies from that era. And they had some wonderful songs, and some of them had great themes. Like this one. How very special are we For just a moment To be part of life's eternal rhyme How very special are we To have on our family tree Mother Earth and Father He turns the seasons around And so she changes her gown But they always look in their prime They go on dancing their dance Of everlasting romance Mother Earth and Father Time The summer larks return to sing Oh, what a gift they give 
then autumn days grow short and cold Oh, what a joy to live How very special are we For just a moment to be Part of life's eternal one How very special are we To have on our family tree Mother Earth and Father Time Beautiful, beautiful tune from Charlotte's Web. All right, I guess that's going to finish things up for us this week. Let's put all of our shows back in the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Well, I sure am glad you folks could spend a couple hours with us again this week, and we're going to do it all over again in two weeks. All right, folks, I'm out of here. Uh, I wish you well. I will see you in two weeks. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.